Okay, here we are on uh, the uh, material on the person of Christ. Uh, the summary definition, uh, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Last week we talked about the humanity of Christ, that Jesus was born of a virgin birth, born to Mary and Joseph. Um, uh, of a virgin birth, he had human weaknesses and limitations, he had a human body, he uh, was born as a, as a little baby, he grew and became strong, increased in wisdom and stature, meant he learned things as an ordinary child would learn things. Uh, he, was, he could be tired because it says he was weary with his journey, he uh, was thirsty, he was hungry, um, and he had flesh and bones uh, even after his resurrection in Luke 24, 39. And so... Uh, uh, then we talked about the fact that Jesus had a human mind. He increased in wisdom. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Um, he had a human soul and human emotions. He was troubled in his spirit. He was sorrowful. He wept. Uh, he offered prayers with loud cries and tears. He's been tempted as we are yet without sin. We talked about that last week. And people near him saw him only as a man. They, uh, during his uh, early lifetime, uh, had no idea that he was also God. He was the carpenter's son, and even his brothers did not believe in him when uh, he began his ministry. Yet he was different from us in that he was free from sin. And again and again, the Bible says he was without sin, he knew no sin, uh, etc. And then we talked about the fact, a question, could Jesus have sinned? If he was really tempted, but he was God, and uh, that was in the notes from last week. That was where we ended. Um, Actually, I had a couple questions anonymously put on the podium this morning. Uh, did Joseph and Mary discipline Jesus? Hmm. Good question. Good question. I don't think they ever had to discipline him for disobedience uh, because he didn't sin. Um, I, I shouldn't, have, shouldn't have raised this question that I couldn't uh, answer. Um, yeah, maybe he forgot to take out the trash, John says. And I was going to suggest something like just um, uh, of oversight or something, but, but, but yeah, yeah. But, but the problem with that is that there's some failure to, you know, remember that you're supposed to take out the trash, and so I don't want to quite go there. So, um, I think, hmm, well, when he, okay, I've got three or four people saying, what about when he tarried at the temple, and he stayed, and then they, he said, well, it's almost like he rebukes them. He said, don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? So, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. He returned to Nazareth and was subject to them, so he was subject to their authority, it says in Luke 2, at the end of Luke 2, but I don't know, I... I'm going to have to think about that. There is, I think, Jesus learned things by trial and error. So, uh, now I don't know, he didn't, I don't think they played baseball then. Baseball hadn't been invented. But I imagine Jesus didn't hit a home run every time. I think he, just because of the finite nature of his human, uh, human, human body and human nature and skills, he, he struck out sometimes, or whatever the Nazareth equivalent of baseball would have been. And, uh, no, if he played soccer, he wouldn't have kicked a goal every time. I think he was an ordinary boy like that. And there's no sin involved in striking out. It's not a moral right or wrong. And so I think if he'd learned to throw a javelin or shoot a bow, he would have missed the bullseye a lot of times because we learn by trial and error, and there's nothing sinful involved in that. And I was just trying to see how that would apply to... Um, to um, discipline. I, I just... I, I think probably... There was only a discipline of perhaps warning, don't do this, you know, to teach him, and telling him that he needed to do things uh, that was by way of obedience, but I don't think of rebuke for sin. Did they worship him? I don't think so, because, see, even his brothers didn't believe in him, so I don't think there was anything going on in the house where they said, you know, you, you, are, you are truly God or something like that. Mary... And probably Joseph, because of what the angels had said and the shepherds said, they must have treasured and kept this secret in their hearts. But I don't think, I don't think that it was revealed. Those, those are interesting questions, though.
Well, we come to the end of this question on Jesus' humanity and say, well, why was it necessary? See, there was a heresy in the early church called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism, which says that Jesus just looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. He was some kind of heavenly creature who was just a pretend man, but not a true man. And the church rejected that because it said, We can't just say that Jesus seemed like a man or looked like a man. Docetism comes from a Greek word, dokeo, to seem or to appear like something. And the church said, no, we can't just have someone who looks like a man. He has to be truly a man, really a man. Why? Well, at least six reasons. If he's not truly a man, number one, He can't be our representative and obey God on our behalf. Adam tried, remember? But he failed. Adam was our representative, but he he failed, and uh, so we were counted guilty because of Adam's sin. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And now Jesus comes, and he is representing us and obeying God on our behalf. And we need the record of his perfect human life to be counted to our account, imputed to us is the theological term thought of as belonging to us uh, uh, if uh, God is to count us righteous. So Romans 5, 18 to 19, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then um, number two, we need Jesus to be a true man in order to be a substitute for us, to die for sins in our place. A heavenly creature who just looked like a man but wasn't a man couldn't be a substitute for us. In fact, the end of the book of Hebrews, it says, uh, Hebrews 2, it says it's not with angels that God is concerned, but with the children of Abraham. And then, verse 17, Hebrews 2, 17, therefore, he had to be made. It wasn't an option. He had to be made in the Greek verb there is strong. It was a requirement. It was a necessity. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I think that means if he wasn't a true man, he couldn't make propitiation as a priest. Propitiation would be the one who bears God's wrath against sin. It's an offering that bears God's wrath. He had to be truly man so he could bear God's wrath and make propitiation for our sins to be a substitute for us. That's number two. Represent us in obedience. Number two, to substitute for us in bearing the penalty for sin. If you don't have Jesus' true humanity, you don't have salvation because there's no substitute who died for you. Number three, to be an example to follow in life. Uh, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says a number of times, follow me. And so, um, uh, that is a kind of reminder, not just to people who walked after him, but to us, to follow him and walk in his path. And then 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, we see his pattern of life and we are to imitate it. And he's our, our example in that way. And he's, he's our example in suffering, he's, uh, and First Peter 2 talks about that. He's our example in death. We are to imitate him. Uh, Paul wants to become like him in his, in his own death. And then he is the pattern for our redeemed bodies, so that once Jesus is raised from the dead and he has a perfect resurrection body, not weak or sick or ill anymore, then that's the pattern for us. And uh, so just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. And elsewhere in that chapter and in Romans, uh, Paul talks about uh, Christ being the first fruits. Uh, that is the first one raised from the dead. I'm not sure if that's first fruits in Romans. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, though. Okay, so let's see. To represent us and obey on our behalf, to substitute uh, for us, to pay the penalty for sin, number three, to be an example, number four, or letter D, The fourth reason that Jesus uh, had to be a man is to be a sympathetic high priest. And we talked about that in a number of applications, and several of you gave really good applications last week. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
In Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Just this last week, I was talking to a friend from another state going through a, a very difficult time uh, of hardship with the loss of a loved one in their family. And uh, I was just able to talk to him and share with him about the fact that Jesus, because he's been tempted and suffered as we have yet without sin, he knows what it's like to, to lose loved ones to death and uh, to be able to sympathize with us. And we can go to him and say, Lord, you understand what I am going through. You went through something like this yourself. And so that's another important part of Jesus' humanity and one that's very, very wonderful for us as we can talk to him about the things that we are going through. E, to be a mediator. Did something change on the sound? Is it better or is it too noisy? It's okay? All right. (laughs) It's what? Okay. Good. Um, To be a mediator. Uh, Jesus is a man so that he can be the one mediator between God and man. A mediator is someone who comes between. So he is a mediator because he represents God to us, shows us what God is like, and he represents us to God. He goes before God on our behalf. So he's the one who is both God and man, and he can mediate between us. Then F, I think there's another reason that Jesus had to become man. It's one that's not really talked about very much. But it has to do with God's whole purpose from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And that is, when God created the world and put Adam and Eve on it to uh, subdue it and fill it and have dominion over it, his purpose was that his greatest creation, that is man, man as male and female, in his image, his greatest creation, man, would rule over all the rest of the creation. Contrary to the radical environmentalists who think that man is the major problem with the earth. If we only got rid of human beings, we could let nature be as it is, wonderful. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God made the creation in order that it would be subject to us and we would benefit from it and have the reward and the fruit from it. Well, Adam and Eve failed. And so God cursed the earth and it brought forth thorns and thistles and it was not subject to man as much anymore and fought against him with tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and drought and choya, (laughs) cactuses. And... uh, And yet, um, the book of Hebrews says God hasn't given up on that promise that the earth would wonderfully be subject to man, ruling over it completely and and wisely and beneficially someday. And so Hebrews 2, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little less than God, crowned him with glory, or a little less than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, quoting Psalm 8. But then the book of Hebrews looks around and he says, well, I don't see everything in subjection to man yet. And then he says, but we see Jesus. So Hebrews 2, our reasoning is going like this putting everything in subjection under man's feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the reasoning is this. We don't yet see the whole earth subject to mankind, But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And I think that means that he is the one who's ruling over the earth and will more fully come back and rule over the earth uh, in the age to come. And then we will reign with him. So God hasn't given up. He will fulfill his purpose. And those who believe in him, you and I who have believed in him, will share in the rule over the earth even more fully than, uh, than we do now. Not to destroy it, but to use it wisely and for our benefit and for God's glory. So six reasons why Jesus had to become a human being. 
to represent us, to be a substitute for us, to be an example, to be a sympathetic high priest, to be a mediator, and to be a human ruler over creation. Then number seven, Jesus will be a man forever. After his resurrection, he he appears to his disciples and says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see for a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he had a real physical body after his resurrection, and he ate fish to show his disciples that he had a real physical body. He broke bread. He walked to the road to Emmaus with them, and they thought it was an ordinary man. And then, when he ascends into heaven, taking that body with him, then the angel says, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think that means he's going to come back in his human body as well. And Acts 7.56, Stephen, when he's dying, it says, he saw the heavens open. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he saw Jesus uh, at the right hand of God. Jesus had used that phrase, Son of Man, to refer to himself 82 times in the Gospels. So there's no question who, Jesus, who Stephen is referring to. And then uh, Revelation 1.13, John's vision. I saw in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Now, the vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, he has this brightness like the sun about him. And, uh, and I don't know how much of it is imagery and how much of it is actually um, to be taken literally, but it's an amazing vision. But it's one who is a man, yet a glorified man and exalted uh, and, and worthy of worship. And Jesus promises that he won't drink again of the fruit of the vine, uh, the wine of communion, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, he'll need a physical body in order to do that. So Jesus will be a man forever. Um, Now, that's the end of the unit on the humanity of Christ. Do you want to ask or talk or contribute or say anything more on that before we go on to the deity of Christ? Yeah, Frank. I'm I'm Dr. Grudem in class, but I'm Wayne here. Okay, hi, Wayne. (laughs) Would it also be true that uh, one of the reasons for his humanity is that he came to reveal the Father to us? Well, I'm going to put that under deity... Oh. But I guess it's both, because he had to be a man to reveal God to us, didn't he? So I could put that as a seventh reason, sure, because he came so that we could see, so that we could see a man who showed us what God is like. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Anything else before we go on? Okay, well, let's go on to the deity of Christ. Now here, this is, this is the most amazing, amazing teaching. That this man, who was a carpenter, who learned as other children do, who uh, lived in a home as other children did, and related to people as a man, that this man was some not just someone a human being in whom God was working, like Moses or David or something like that, but that this man was also himself God, that he was truly God, true man like us and true God, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And how can that be? That's the question we need to try to work at now today and then uh, next Sunday as well. So, here are a whole lot of evidences about Jesus' deity in the New Testament. First of all, there are some passages that use the word God, or the Greek word theos, to refer to Jesus. Uh, John 1.1, talking about Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I Back when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, I went into this a little bit in detail, but the Jehovah's Witnesses don't agree with that translation. They put a small g there. The word was a God or a heavenly being, and grammatically grammatically and contextually, uh, as far as I know, they've persuaded no one in the whole world uh, except for Jehovah's Witnesses that their Greek translation is correct. But uh, both liberal and conservative New Testament scholars who understand Greek say 
Uh, sorry, that's a bogus translation. It's out to lunch. This, re this verse really, whether you believe it or not, is what the Greek says, that the, the word was God. And uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That one has a difference, some, verse, some manuscripts have God and some manuscripts have Son, but I think the better manuscripts, the older and more reliable ones, say that the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. But there's another one that's very strong at the end of John, John 20.28. 20, Jesus appeared to his disciples Thomas hadn't been there earlier. Now Thomas is there, and Jesus says, uh, See, it is I myself. Put your hand and touch forth and touch me. And Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God. What is interesting about that in the context of John is that John has been working up to this point for 20 chapters. And so through the whole gospel, he's been demonstrating who Jesus is. And then Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who haven't seen me and who have believed. In other words, the readers of the gospel, they're supposed to believe the same thing as Thomas just said, that Jesus is Lord and God. And then John says, Jesus did many other signs or miracles too, but I wrote these down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, this dramatic encounter with Thomas is sort of the dramatic high point of the Gospel of John, at least after the resurrection. The Gospel's been building up to this, and then you see Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. And then John says, readers, I want you to say the same thing and to believe the same thing, and that's why I wrote this gospel. So it's very strong in the way it's put there in John, and, uh, and it's very clear. He's calling Jesus God, Theos. And then Romans 9, 5, uh, Paul calls Jesus the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Titus 2, 13, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 8, of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So here's God the Father calling, in his word, calling Jesus God, calling the Son God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then 2 Peter 1, 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have uh, the Apostle John, who had followed Jesus and walked with him for three years. He's calling Jesus God. And here we have Peter, who had followed Jesus and walked with him for three years as a man, and he's calling him God. But are those the only verses in the Bible that call Jesus God or affirm his deity? No. I mean, there are those six or seven or eight uh, that use the word theos of, of, um, of Jesus. But, just pause for a minute here. Think back to the Old Testament there are two different words that are used to refer to God most commonly. One is the word translated God, but, some, but another many, many times God is called what? Jehovah. Jehovah in some translations or Yahweh in Hebrew, and most translations translate that the Lord, okay? So if you have... Jesus called Lord, and it's against that Old Testament background, then those are also going to be affirmations that he's the Lord of the Old Testament, uh, the one, one who's called Lord in the Old Testament. And in fact, there are over 200 cases where Jesus is called Lord in that sense in the New Testament. And it seems to be not 100% this way, but a kind of pattern where ordinarily God the Father is, is called with this Greek word theos, God, more often of God the Father, not these times because there's overlap, but more often that's used of God the Father and Lord is used of Jesus Christ more often. So here are some where the word Lord, kurios, is used of Christ. In fact, see this Greek word, kurios, that Greek word, if you look back at the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, if you look back at that, that Greek word is used 6,814 times to translate the Hebrew name Jehovah or Yahweh or the Lord. So now, if you know your Old Testament at all, 
and it's 6,800 and some times in the Old Testament that you've been reading it in Greek, and kurios is the Lord God. Then you come and start calling Jesus Lord. That's a pretty strong affirmation of deity as well. And so, but now I have to say to you, just to be fair, that Greek word kurios doesn't always mean the Lord God. Sometimes it's just a polite way of addressing a superior, like we would say, sir. So, the woman at the well, this man comes and says, you give me a drink, and she says, sir, I don't have any, you don't have anything to draw with. Why are you asking? You're a Jew. Why, don't you, why do you ask me? So she doesn't know that he's the Lord God yet, but she uses the word kurios because that's how you would address someone in a polite way. So there are some times where it just means master or sir, but there are a number of times, many times, I think over 200 times, where it doesn't mean that kind of weakened sense of kurios. It means the strong sense of the Lord God in the Old Testament. And so here uh, in Luke 2, hmm, I think it's Luke 2.11, but there's, a, there's an unwanted space there between the two ones. Let me see. Yeah, um, Luke 2.11 the angel said to the shepherds out in the field, For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Christ meant Messiah. Good. They were thinking, wow, we've been waiting for years, centuries. To you is born this day a Savior who is the Messiah or Christ. Wow, we are really excited. And then the angel says, the Lord. He's saying... To you is born this day a Savior who is the Messiah. And you were expecting a human Messiah, weren't you? You were expecting somebody like King David or King Solomon. See, you were expecting a human Messiah. And now the angel says in words that they probably took a long time to ponder and think about. To you is born this day in the city of David a Messiah who, who is the Lord God. Whoa. See, that's what I think that phrase, Christ the Lord, means. Messiah, the Lord God of the Old Testament. They were expecting a human Messiah, and the angels saying, guess what? God has come as a Messiah who is also God himself. And that was astounding, and it took a long time for the disciples to catch on, to realize that this man, whom they thought was the Messiah, was also truly God. They get glimpses of it, and they get understanding that grows through the Gospels. So, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Luke 1.43, Luke 1.43, Mary, when she's pregnant with Jesus in her womb, she goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and the baby, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed, she says this to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, there's no way she could have known that Mary was the mother of the Lord God, unless the Holy Spirit had revealed it to her. But see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She said, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I think she must have said, what did I say? How could this woman be the mother of my Lord? She can't mean it in the ordinary human sense of a master or anything like that. She has to mean it, I think, in this Old Testament sense. John the Baptist comes preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming, Matthew 3, 3. That's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 40 the, the, uh, and uh, Malachi. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Then Jesus, in his ministry, begins to use this title of himself. So he says to these Jewish leaders who are arguing with him and trying to trip him up and trick him, he said, well, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, David's son. Well, then he says, well, wait a minute. Here's some words that David said. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. If David calls him Lord, that is, if David says to the Messiah, my Lord, how can he be his son? 
they weren't able to answer. Jesus takes that quotation from Psalm 110, and he shows that it, it does refer to the Messiah, but it refers to the Messiah, who is also David's Lord, the Lord God. And so, again and again and again, over 200 times in the epistles, Jesus is called Lord. One Lord, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that's just one example of over 200. The Lord Jesus Christ, very often in the epistles. And Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, talking about Jesus. You, Lord, founded the earth in the beginning. Oops, that's a terrible mistake. It says, you, Lord, founded the earth many more times in the epistles. It needs to be another line there, <laughs> that it's many more times in the epistles. I didn't do, I'm sorry. But it, it is quoting, again, the Old Testament. It says to, about Jesus, you, Lord, founded the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. It is saying about Jesus that he's the one who created the heavens and the earth with the Father, Father working through him, but he's called Lord. So that's another strong proof of Jesus' deity, abundant proof. Again and again. Then there are some other strong claims to deity in the New Testament. John 8, 57 to 58. Um, Jesus, again, in interaction to his, with his opponents, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And they know it's echoing the I am statement of Exodus 3.14, where God says, I am who I am. And uh, they, they, uh, they want to put him to death for blasphemy, for claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In other words, trusting in Jesus gives you spiritual life. You can't say that about Moses or David or Abraham or anything else. He's the one who provides spiritual life to everybody who is ever born again in the world. He's the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Light, meaning the source of knowledge and the source of moral purity in the whole world. I am the light of the world. Now, see, when I'm, you're coming in here and I'm standing back there at the, where the coffee and the refreshments are and I walk up to somebody and say, oh, hi, what's your name? Hello. And I just, um, oh, now I forgot your name. I remembered it. Stan, yeah. And so we talked a few minutes. So let's say one day I'm back there um, and, you know, some, somebody, a new guy walks in and, and I say, hello, what's your name? And he says, I'm so-and-so. I said, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm the light of the world. See, I'm thinking, this guy's crazy. You don't claim that unless it's true or you're, or you're crazy. And if it's true, it's astounding. It's saying, I am the source of knowledge for the whole world. And light has a sense of moral purity as opposed to darkness, uh, See, I'm, I'm the one who gives moral purity to the whole world. That's, that's an astounding statement. And Jesus just says it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or again, if you met someone and, he said, and you say, well, well, what do you do? Well, I'm an electrician. Well, what do you do? Well, I'm a builder. Well, what do you do? Well, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> again. <laughs> what is that? That means that anybody who ever is raised from the dead is raised from the dead through me. I am the source of resurrection. I am the source of genuine eternal life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. These, are, these I am statements in John are astounding claims to deity. These are claims to be things that only God can be. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, he's the only way to come to the Father. I think that's another claim to deity. So these are, these are amazing. Revelation twenty two thirteen. I am the Alpha and Omega. And the Omega, this uh, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And I think that means that he's the beginning and the end of all history. It's, it flows out of him, and it's headed toward him as its goal. Only God could claim that. No angel, angel Gabriel couldn't claim that. Angel Michael couldn't claim that. David, Moses, 
Peter, Paul, they couldn't claim that. Only Jesus can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Or when he's on trial, just before his crucifixion in Mark 14, 61 to 62, again the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah or Christ? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, that is, Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, if you don't know your Old Testament real well, that maybe sounds like strange language, and you think it sounds pretty important, but I don't know quite what it means. But if you were a Jewish leader, like the high priest, and you knew your Old Testament really well, and you knew the predictions of the Old Testament really well, then you know that the most famous passage in the Old Testament that has the phrase, Son of Man, in it, is Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Let me read it. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there, remember, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, it's like a human being, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. Now Daniel 7, 14. This, this one who looks like a man comes with the clouds of heaven. He comes before God the Father. And what happens? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. In other words, he's going to be ruler over the whole world. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. For how long? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's going to be an eternal ruler over the whole world. Forever and ever, his kingdom's not going to pass away. That's who Daniel sees in this night vision coming on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Daniel can't figure it out. How can this be? Over the whole world, a ruler for all eternity. And Jesus stands before the high priest on trial and he says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He's putting those two together. And Jesus said, I am. And here's one more thing that I am. You will see the Son of Man. That's the phrase he's used to refer to himself 82 times in the Gospels. So they know who he's talking about. You will see the, the Son of Man. Not just a Son of Man, but the. That is the true one, the one that fulfills that Old Testament prediction. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, you're going to see me come to rule over the whole world forever. Oh. What more proof do we need, said the high priest? He's uttered blasphemy. And they put him to death. But he's speaking truth. Again, a strong, strong claim to be God. Hebrews 1, the whole chapter of Hebrews 1 is an affirmation of the deity of Christ, but look at these words. In these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. In other words, he's going to inherit what? what? You know, some children inherit this or that from their parents, a house, a lake home maybe or something. Well, he's going to be the heir of all things. He's going to inherit the universe as the one who has the right to rule over it, through whom also the Father created the world, through whom... Also, God created the world through Christ. So the Father spoke through the Son and created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That Greek word, character, it's uh, used of uh, the, a coin that was minted and it looked exactly like the, the press that had minted it. It's the exact duplicate. It's saying Jesus is the exact replication, the exact duplicate of the nature of God. What that means is if God himself is eternal, then the Son is eternal. If God the Father is omnipotent, the Son is omnipotent. He's the exact duplicate or imprint of his nature. If the Father is omniscient, the Son is omniscient. The Father is infinite in love and justice and knowledge and mercy, and so is the Son. In every way, he's the exact imprint of the nature or being of God, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. Strong affirmation of deity. It's all over the New Testament. You can't get away from it. That this New Testament, again and again, hundreds of times, is claiming in various ways that Jesus is not only truly man, but he is fully, completely God himself. 
I, um, I was working on this passage this last week to do these notes for the study Bible. And I saw something in here, it was pointed out to me from some other reading, that I had not seen. The passage is this, Mark 4.37. Jesus dismisses the crowd. He sends his disciples away across the sea. They've got six or seven miles to go back across the Sea of Galilee. It's night. He goes up into the hills to pray. And then... Um, Oh, wait a minute. I've gotten ahead of myself. I've got to do this story first, and then I do the, and then I do the next one in Mark 6. First, first this one. Hold on. Back up. Erase that. Um, this one, he goes with them in the boat. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. Why was he sleeping? He was tired. As a human being, he was tired. He was asleep. Okay, he was just exhausted. There's a storm, he's still sleeping. So he's asleep. So then he awoke, probably still tired, maybe still yawning. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're following this man. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. They're following him. But they know there's only one person in the universe that can command the winds and the seas, and that's God himself who made the winds and the seas. And they're saying, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, that's a claim to deity in his actions. But no answer is explicitly given. That's Mark 4. Now, here, we go over to Mark 6, and this is the passage I was working on. Mark 6, 47. And when evening came, The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. This is where he had sent the disciples ahead of him. They're rowing. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And you put together the situation in Matthew and in John, they were a few miles out on the sea, maybe two-thirds of the way across. And about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's the puzzling phrase. He meant to pass by them. I looked at the Greek text. It's thelo. He wanted to pass by them. It isn't just like he he looked like he was going to pass by them. He intended to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Why? Well, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They didn't know who it was. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Man, what is happening? Why did he mean to pass by them? Well, as I read in some of the commentaries, I found out, they pointed out, that there were some things here in the Greek text that echoed the Old Testament and helped me understand what was going on. So here's the note that I wrote last week for the ESV Study Bible, just to whet your appetite when it comes, and uh, continue praying for me. But I think uh, the Lord helped on this. Here's the note. He meant to pass by them. Not so that they would fail to see him, in which case he would have stayed farther away from them, but so that they would see him pass by, Greek par erkomai, pass by, go by so that they would see him pass by walking on the water, thus giving visible evidence of his deity and answering the question they asked after he stilled the sea in 441, who then is this? The wording of the passage echoes the incident where God had passed before Moses. Same verb, par erkomai, occurs in the Septuagint of Exodus 33, 19, 22, and 34, 6, where Moses, God passed before Moses showing a glimpse of his glory. 
but the Greek word par erkomai and, and also walking on the sea, it also echoes Job 9, where Job says that it is God who trampled the waves of the sea. And here in Job 9, 8 in the Septuagint, the Septuagint has peripaton epithalases, walking on the sea, using the same words as Mark 6, 48, peripaton epithalases, walking on the sea. And Job also says, if God should pass by me, just three verses later, Job 9.11, par erkomai, there is an implicit claim to divinity in the conduct of Jesus. So I think, I think what is happening is the disciples are way out, far from the land. He knows they're rowing hard. They're going to eventually get there. But he comes walking on the sea, as only God can do. And he means to pass by them. I think he means to... <laughs> and then they saw him and they, were cry they cried out and so he got in the boat with them and the sea, the sea was calm. He meant to pass by them. So, again, I think that is... Um, when he's walking on the sea, against the background of the Old Testament, is God who walks on the sea. And Jesus is doing that. So, Jamie. Could it be, could it be, yeah. Uh, could it be that he would go before them like God going before the people of Israel? Well, if I had language that says he meant to go before them, See, but this is passing by, going by. So I think it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Might have happened afterward if they hadn't seen it. Okay. Well, uh, Mark 2.8, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves. Anyway, on that thing, does that, is this, do you like that? I mean, I was really, I was really taken by that when I, when I saw it, and I, I think it's right. Um, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they question within himself. That's omniscience. He knows what people are thinking in their hearts. Uh, uh, John 1, uh, 48, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I think that's an indication of omniscience. Uh, John 6, 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who would, who would betray him. That's omniscience. John 2, 25, he needed no one to bear witness about man. He himself knew it was in man. Omniscience. John 16, 30, we know that you know all things. Omniscience. Matthew 18, 24, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Omnipresence. Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Omnipresence. John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then it says, but he spoke of the temple of his body. I think that speaks of immortality. And um, that is also in another verse that I have listed there in John 10. Uh, John 10, 17 to 18. Uh, Hebrews 7, 16, the power of an indestructible life, uh, deity. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He's worthy to be worshipped, which could not be true of any creature, but only of God. That's a lot of evidence of deity. Now, we have a few minutes left, and I'm going to just take up a couple of remaining questions. But just, just to say before I go on, there's abundant evidence of Jesus' deity uh, throughout the New Testament. Gunther? Genesis ah, say it again. 18, uh, he fought with Jacob, yeah. and Daniel saw the yeah. Ancient of Days, and yeah. John saw Christ sitting next to yeah. uh, God, so yeah. no one seen man? Yeah, Doesn't okay, uh, John one eighteen. no one has ever seen God. Uh, what does that mean? Hard, hard verse, Gunther. I think it means no one has ever fully seen God, but Moses did see something of God. Abraham did see a manifestation of God, so a little bit, but not completely. I, that's the best I can do, and I, I, I'm not sure that's completely satisfactory. Joseph but, Smith saw him at the no, no, no. Okay, I'm going to go on. Okay. Did Jesus, here's a question that people ask. Did Jesus give up some of his divine attributes while on earth? 
in theology, this is sometimes called the kenosis theory because there's a Greek word, kenao, uh, that means empty. And it's, and, it's, uh, and it's claimed from Philippians 2, 5 to 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or other translations say, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. What does that mean? He emptied himself. Some people have said it means, oh, he gave up his omnipresence and his omnipotence, and he gave up his omniscience while he was on earth. The problem with that is, if Jesus is not omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, he's not fully God. You can't have a person that's partly God and gives up some of his attributes. So I don't think that's the right understanding of that. The early church never understood it in this way. It came in the 1850s, some German, some liberal German theologians writing, saying, oh, Jesus was, while he was on earth, he gave up some of his divine attributes. Sorry, Gunther, I don't mean all Germans are liberal or anything like that, or German speakers. Okay, but uh, these were liberal Germans. And um, uh, the text doesn't say that he emptied himself of any attributes. It says he emptied himself, and I think that really means he gave up privileges and honor that he had in heaven, but not power, not knowledge, not anything like that. Uh, the text says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So I think it means he gave up his glory, he gave up his privileges in heaven. And the purpose is to, humil is to encourage humility in the Philippians. Paul doesn't want the Philippians to give up some of their knowledge or some of their strength or something like that. He wants them to take a lowly position regarding, with respect to others. And the larger context of the New Testament just doesn't support any giving up of divine attributes. So I don't agree with this. When it came out, evangelicals fought it, opposed it, said it's wrong, and they kind of won the battle in terms of the intellectual argument. But I'm sorry to say, in the last 20 years, I've heard some evangelicals giving in to this idea. I think it's a mistake. Uh, Clyde. The text translation says he voided himself. Something says he voided himself? Oh, Beck, okay. Yeah, I, you know, I... It's, people struggle with it, and we struggled with it a long time in the ESV committee, and we went with what the NIV had, made himself nothing, which we, had to do, we thought had to do with status or uh, you know, standing or privilege. I'm still not sure I'm happy with it. I wrote myself another note this morning saying we should maybe come back to this. It's a, emptied himself has been misunderstood, and we didn't want to do that, but maybe just humbled or something like that would work. So I, I'm not sure what's the best, but I'm saying it doesn't mean he gave up his attributes. Okay, conclusion. Christ is fully divine. Colossians 1.19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Matthew 1.23, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, um, that's been the teaching of the church throughout its history. That Jesus is fully man and fully God. Um, in 1977, in England, a book was published called The Myth of God Incarnate. Incarnate means in the flesh or in human form. The Myth of God Incarnate, edited by John Hick, and the authors in it are all ordained clergymen and scholars and leaders in the Church of England, and they are saying, well just right here in the preface, they're saying Christianity has been a continuously growing and changing movement. We used to think that uh, man was directly created, but now we believe that man is part of nature and has evolved with the evolution of forms of life on the earth. We used to think the Bible was the very words of God. Now it cannot be accorded a verbal divine authority. So Christianity continues to change, and we need to give up this idea that Jesus was God. Why do they say we have to give this up? Because it's unintelligible. What they mean by that, that's philosophical language for it doesn't make sense. They are arguing that it doesn't make sense that any person could be fully man and yet fully God as well. And so here they are, Church of England clergy, writing this. I mean, who, who are they? They are, um, let me just see here. Um, uh, lecturer in divinity at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, uh, 
tutor in theology at Birmingham University, professor of theology at Birmingham University, uh, warden of a college in Oxford, and Maurice Wiles, whom I met only once, briefly, professor of divinity in Oxford and chairman of the Church of England Doctrine Commission, denying the deity of Christ. Incredible that this could be published and that they would take pride in writing and endorsing a whole book, The Myth of God Incarnate, Denying the Deity of Christ. But they're, they're basically saying, I'm not going to believe what the Bible says if it doesn't make sense to me. I can't understand it, so I'm not going to believe it. That's the heart of the argument. I've read through in more detail, and I've lectured on some uh, more details of this, but that's, that's in, at heart what it is. Thankfully... Hmm? They're Episcopalian, yeah, in the United States would be Episcopalian, this is Church of England. Now, thankfully, a number of other Episcopalian or Church of England clergymen immediately came back with this book, The, the Truth of God Incarnate, answering it, and they, they, it's a little bit shorter, but they got it off the press quickly, and had an answer out there, and there were disputes, but nothing happened to these people in terms of discipline in the church, because it was so broad and included all these views. Sad, uh, sad thing. My, my response to that is the proper response to being puzzled over how this could be. How could a man be truly God? The proper response is not to reject the clear and central teaching of Scripture about the incarnation of Christ, Jesus being a man, but simply uh, being a man and God, but simply to recognize that it will remain a paradox. That is, it's not a contradiction, but in some sense it's a mystery we believe it because the Bible says it again and again. It's true, uh, but somehow a paradox. Now, next week, I'm going to spend the whole hour explaining how the church tried to deal with this. And it took, it took 400 years. It took till 451 A.D. at the Council of Chalcedon until the church kind of said, well, it's not, we don't mean it this way, we don't mean it this way, and here's another idea that we don't mean, and this is what we do mean by how Jesus was God and man in one person, how it all fit together. And it wasn't easy, but they came to this conclusion that I think is right. Well, we'll talk about that next week. But finally, just to, just to close here, why was Jesus' deity necessary? I think primarily because salvation is from the Lord and no human being is going to earn our salvation for us, no mere human being. That is, I think only one who was truly God as well could bear the penalty for all our sins man and God together, to bear the penalty for our sins. Number two, only one who is truly and fully God could be the mediator between God and man. Number three, only one who was truly God could adequately reveal God to us. Earlier verse was 1 Timothy 2.5. This is John 14.9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Therefore, I think we have to confess Jesus' deity. We have to believe that he is fully divine Second John 9 says, anyone who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So yes, his humanity is necessary and his deity is necessary. Now, let me pause there and just see if you want to say anything or ask anything. We're almost done. What's your name? Pascal. Pas Pascal. Pascal. I guess I'm surprised that the idea of the, the Jewish Messiah to come was never contemplated to be, to be God. And is that, does that still persist in, in, mm. Jewish, in the Jewish mind? Yes, I think so, although it's very hard to say anything about modern Judaism because it's so diverse. There are some modern Jews who don't believe that the Old Testament is the word of God, some who say we're not any longer looking for a Messiah. Judaism is just a cultural and ethnic thing. And others who are more conservative and yet await a Messiah. But, see, I don't think that they put together the idea, the surprising idea, that the Messiah is also going to be God, not just an anointed man. And that's, that helps us understand the puzzlement of the disciples in the Gospels. Yeah, good question. Yeah, what else? Anything else? Um, yeah, John. On your footnote oh, that we Clyde and then John. On that footnote that we talked about earlier, do you think the, the disciples of that time recognized the Septuagint, those, yeah. are those phrases oh. in Septuagint, or is that for... 
I don't know if the disciples recognized that or not. They probably knew that God was the one who walked on the water. But Mark, when he was writing this, after, see, Mark was Peter's preaching companion. And Mark, in the mid-50s then, 20 years later or more, is writing this gospel, and I think he'd heard Peter explain it. So then I think he knew. Because it, it maybe dawned on them later, though. Yeah, good, John. Well, I was just thinking about how interesting it was, the strong point you made about Jesus walking on the water. And if you think about it in, in current times, that's probably the most uh, used expression when people are talking about deity. Mm. They'll say, well, you know, he doesn't walk on water. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, mm -hmm. it's used a lot, yeah. even by non-believers. So yeah. <laughs> it must they, be they, they, they don't know how true they're speaking. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, he doesn't. There's only one who does that, and he's God. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's see. I'm going to stand up.